When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby. And I'm Liv. But the most important thing about today is not who I am, it's not who you are, it's that we're starting the Odyssey. So let's just recap the important stuff before we delve right in to this magnificent piece of ancient literature, shall we? 1. Eris tossed the apple of discord into the wedding celebrations of Peleus and Thetis. 
Shit went down, goddess versus goddess, Aphrodite was deemed the winner by Paris because she was willing to give him a hot woman to have sex with. Two. Two dudes got super mad about this. Menelaus, king of Sparta, because Helen was his wife and now she was having sex with Paris. And Agamemnon, because he's a warmonger the likes of a great many American presidents. <gasps> Whoops, did I say that? Three. Basically, every other king in Greece was forced to go to war against Troy with Menelaus and Agamemnon because of the hot lady. They'd pledged some dumb shit back when every man in Greece wanted to marry her. It's a whole thing, and it's pretty silly. Four. They meet in Aulis, but goddammit if there isn't any wind! Agamemnon sacrifices his own daughter to fix that, and they all head to war. Five. The war is long. Long, long, long. There's a lot of death, a lot of gore, zero romance no matter what the movie Troy leads you to believe. And in the end, nothing good comes from it. Seriously, it probably wasn't a true story, but what it was was the first parable about how stupid war is and how it really just ruins everything and no one gets what they want. Six. Everyone heads home from war. Some people make it, some people, like Agamemnon, return home with another woman after ten years and are immediately killed in the bathtub by their wives and their wives' new lovers. Sucker. Seven. Agamemnon's kids don't love this, and they see about killing their mother and her new lover and then getting hounded by furies until finally Apollo comes down and wraps things up in a nice little bow by telling everyone to get married. This is episode 47, Telemachus is a Boiny Little Bee, The Odyssey, Part 1. Meanwhile, in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea... Odysseus has been away from home for a really long time. Like, I'm talking a really, really long time. Odysseus, you remember, is one of the least horrible of the ancient Greeks that went to war with Troy. He was being loyal, and so he went. But Odysseus really just wants a quiet life in his home of Ithaca with his wife Penelope, who he actually loves and talks about quite often, and his son, Telemachus, who was just a little baby when Odysseus left. Muses, sing to us of cunning Odysseus. Athena is concerned. She's concerned for Odysseus. He's been trying to get to his home in Ithaca these long years. I believe we're at seven. And that's seven long years after the ten long years he spent away in Troy. Odysseus's son, Telemachus, is grown now. When his father left, he was just a baby. Even Telemachus barely believes his mother when she says that he's the son of Odysseus, because he has no memory of the man and can find no proof. He's bitter. None of their lives have gone as planned. But Athena desperately wants to help. She calls on Zeus, her father, to help Odysseus return home. You see, she says, Odysseus has been held captive these many years by the nymph Calypso daughter of Atlas, the woman who knows the depths of the oceans. She's been hanging on to Odysseus tightly, hoping one day he'll come around and marry her. Finally, Zeus agrees. Odysseus has been through enough, he thinks, and add to that, Odysseus has been a faithful dedicant to Zeus, and so is one of the few that deserves the god's help. Athena is thrilled and immediately flies off to put her plan into motion. First, She'll go to Telemachus, Odysseus' son in Ithaca, to plant the seeds so that he may continue on her plan.
Athena appears to Telemachus, not as herself, of course. She takes the guise of a mortal guest that will be welcomed by Telemachus and Penelope. In Ithaca, Athena, disguised as this human male guest of the palace, is immediately overwhelmed by what she sees. Who are all these men? Athena asks Telemachus. The place is packed with would-be guests, but Athena can't make heads or tails of why there would be so many men there at once. And on top of that, they're being particularly rude, rambunctious, causing trouble. The men are absolutely not taking their side of the guest-host relationship seriously. Athena asks Telemachus about all of this, and, dejectedly, Telemachus explains to Athena what's been going on. These men are suitors of my mother, he tells her. They've been here these seven years, ever since we heard about the end of the war. As soon as Odysseus didn't return home from Troy, the suitors assumed he was dead, and they've been here trying to convince my mother to marry one of them ever since. Can you imagine? My god, that would suck so much. All these strange dudes in your house constantly hitting on you, and when they're not, they're just drinking and being noisy assholes. Penelope has the patience of a saint, I swear. Telemachus explains all this to Athena, adding that the gods have cursed him and his family, that it would be so much better if they just knew whether Odysseus still lived, but instead the gods provide them only with endless uncertainty. Is he alive or is he dead? Did he die in Troy or is he on his way home? The suitors are there because Penelope can't turn them down, because if Odysseus has indeed died, then the woman needs a husband. She can't just be a woman, you know. But then, she doesn't want to believe he's died, so she certainly can't choose one. And so these men wait, and the family waits, though they're not entirely sure what they're waiting for. Athena tries to comfort Telemachus, tries to convince him that his father hasn't died after all. She tells him that Odysseus just needs to come home right now and sort these men out. But, Athena tells Telemachus, there's something you can do to sort the situation out while he's still away. First, call a meeting of the leaders of the whole area and tell the suitors to go the fuck home. She doesn't say fuck in this translation, but I'd like to think she enjoyed a curse here and there. Tell them to go home and leave Penelope alone, and then you find a ship and make your own journey in search of Odysseus. Athena tells Telemachus to start with Nestor in Pylos. Nestor, as we all remember so well, is the wise old member of the Greeks during the war. Athena knows that, of anyone, he may have news about the fate of Odysseus. Then, she tells Telemachus, travel to Sparta to see Menelaus. Ask him if he's heard anything about it, since he's the second-to-last man to return home from the war. Of course, we all remember part of what delayed Menelaus. It was that little thing in Argos where his brother was killed by his wife, Clytemnestra, who's Menelaus' sister-in-law, both through his brother Agamemnon, but also through his own wife, Helen. Man, it's also convoluted. And then Clytemnestra was killed by Menelaus' nephew, and so Menelaus was there to maybe help his nephew and niece. And oh, then his nephew almost killed his own wife, Helen, but then she was just taken up to Mount Olympus. But a warning right now, that particular detail doesn't track into this story. So in this story, Menelaus and Helen then went home to Sparta, which is where Athena tells Telemachus to find her. <sighs> so yeah, that's what took him so long. And so Telemachus has a plan to find out whatever he can about the fate of his father, Odysseus. First, he'll travel to Pylos to see Nestor, and then to Sparta to see Menelaus. One of them must have some information about Odysseus. 
So, Athena tells Telemachus, if you hear that these men heard he was alive, then you just have to put up with these bullshit suitors for another year. But if you hear from these men that your father has died, go home and build him a tomb and throw him a funeral and make your peace. Find your mother a new husband, because, you know, that's definitely the son's job. And then figure out how you're going to kill all these suitors. That's right, just kill them. And with that, Athena leaves Telemachus with this plan. She also disappears in a way that convinces Telemachus he'd just been speaking with a god, and not just any old guest who showed up to tell him exactly how to handle this sticky situation he finds himself in, with exact guidelines and how-tos. Meanwhile, in the banquet hall where all of this took place, and where the suitors are being giant assholes and eating all the food and drinking all the drinks and just being dicks, a poet has been singing. The poet has been telling the story of how Athena herself cursed those Greeks traveling home from Troy, how she asked that their journeys be treacherous and, when necessary, deadly. Penelope hears this from upstairs, and she comes to a balcony overlooking the area. She's with two of her slave women, and she's very upset. She tells the poet to pick another story. He knows so many about exciting things that have been done by the gods and by heroes. Why sing this song that breaks her heart every time she hears it? And I mean, it does seem pretty insensitive to consistently sing a song about the war this woman's husband hasn't returned from, let alone the specific part in the story where their journey home has been cursed. I mean, read the room, right? But Telmachus doesn't like his mother speaking up this way. She's a woman, you know. What is she doing addressing all these men, making requests of them? The nerve. Anyway, Penelope is awesome, and Telemachus is kind of a little dick. He basically tells his mother to shut up here, that she can't criticize the poet for what he sings. Stick to the loom, he tells her. That's what women do. It's up to the men to do the speaking. Which is where I'll pause to tell you you should all read the tiny little book called Women and Power by Mary Beard. She wrote that super famous book, SPQR, about the history of Rome, and Women in Power is really just a published speech in which she talks about exactly this, and it's wonderful and important, and go read it. Anyway, Telemachus is a little dink, and Penelope is kind of taken aback by what he said, and probably a little hurt by it. So she does indeed return to her room and leave the speaking up to the men. And so another woman is silenced in Greek mythology. When morning comes, Telemachus proceeds with the plan, calling a council of all the leaders of the nearby regions. This necessarily includes many of the suitors themselves, as they're often the powerful men of the region, looking to gain the kingship of Ithaca. They all meet, not knowing why they've been brought there. Telemachus tells them that he's called them all together to deal with the suitors, and, well, honestly, he throws a tantrum and ends up storming off in tears. Post-tantrum, though, one of the suitors speaks up. He tells Telemachus how Penelope has herself kept them going all these years. You see, Penelope has had her own plan all along. For nearly four years, she was providing forms of hope to the suitors, that she may in fact choose one of them to be her husband and king of Ithaca. But that, you see, she couldn't choose a husband until she'd finished weaving a shroud. She was weaving the shroud for Laertes, Odysseus's father, so that he may be buried in it when he dies. She appealed to the emotions of the suitors, telling them that she simply must finish this to honor her husband's father when he dies, and the suitors are understanding. They let her work on the shroud. 
But by day, Penelope weaves and weaves at her loom, creating the shroud for Laertes. And by night, in the darkness, Penelope carefully unpicks everything she's woven throughout the day, ensuring for these four years that she'd never gotten any closer to finishing the shroud. She's a fucking badass, is what I'm saying. She's super smart, she knows what she wants, and she knows that in this world she doesn't have the power she should, and so she takes what little power she has as a woman in ancient Greece, and she uses it. Now, sadly, what takes away from this epic tale of deception is that, well, the suitor finishes the story by saying that after the four years, they caught her and forced her to finish it. Whatever, fuck them. It was a great fucking plan, Penelope. So essentially, they're saying, Telemachus... We're going to stay here until we can't stay here any longer. Doesn't matter what you say, doesn't matter what Penelope says, we're going to stay here until she marries one of us, and isn't that fucking romantic? Zeus, though, isn't a huge fan of this decision by the suitors. He sends down two eagles who swoop low to the crowded men gathered in the council, even grazing them with their talons. Thankfully, there's a man there who's particularly good at prophecy, and he explains what I think is obvious. This is not a great sign for you suitors. No, those eagles who just swooped down and raked their talons across your skin aren't really a fan of what you're doing here. Surprising, I know. He tells them that he foresees that Odysseus will not be gone long, that he's already getting closer and closer, and their deaths are growing imminent. This man also drops information that one might think could have come in handy earlier. He says that before Odysseus went away to war, he foresaw this and told Odysseus that he saw this, that Odysseus would suffer and all his men would die and that he would return home after 20 years, which he notes is almost now. So, you know, I think they probably could have figured it out that Odysseus was still en route, but they never seem to believe prophecies, even when it's clear that basically all of them come true. Anyway, it's a whole thing. A super obvious bad omen, and then the suitors saying, no, eagles do that weird shit all the time, it's definitely not an omen. And then some silliness against and with Telemachus, because he's a silly kid. But in the end, Telemachus tells them his plan, reiterating what Athena told him. He's going to travel to Pylos to speak with Nestor and then Sparta to speak with Menelaus. If they believe Odysseus is alive, he'll put up with another year of their suitor bullshit. But if they say he's dead, Telemachus will concede. Telemachus leaves them with this announcement, and the council breaks off. The suitors return to the palace to keep fucking shit up, and the rest of the men return to their homes. But Telemachus is feeling emo, still, and so he goes down to the beach to speak with Athena. He calls out to Athena, reminding her what she told him just the other day, and once again referring to the suitors as mean bullies, be best. Athena tells Telemachus not to worry, to be brave, and to follow his father's own cunning and bravery, To ignore the suitors, they're going to do what they're going to do, but it will be over for them soon enough. She tells Telemachus that she'll do all the heavy lifting for him, and that she'll get him a ship and plan the trip and even go with him. She says all he needs to do is to collect provisions for their journey. So Telemachus returns to the palace to do just that, but of course he encounters the suitors along the way, and again, he's a whiny little bee complaining about everything instead of trying to do anything about it, aside from blindly following Athena's order. 
Anyway, Telemachus is pretty darn annoying. He complains to the suitors and tells them he's traveling to Pelos, even though he doesn't have his own ship because of them, to which they straight up mock him. Oh, poor baby doesn't have a ship. He's going to travel to Pelos and return with men to kill us. Or maybe he's going to return right now with some poison. Do it that way. Anyway, it's pretty entertaining. I'm really enjoying this translation. Eventually, Telemachus gives up on the suitors and goes to the storeroom to get everything together. And by that, I mean, of course, he orders a woman to do it. But while he's telling her what to get him and to do it secretly, she gets a little emotional. You know women. She tells Telemachus not to go so far that his father is dead and gone. But he pushes on, telling her not only is he going, but she's not allowed to tell his mom about it until she learns on her own. He doesn't want her crying to, quote, spoil her pretty skin. In the night, Athena arranges for men to crew the ship, and by morning they've set sail. A ship full of crew members, Telemachus and Athena... Athena calls on Zephyr to bring them good wind so they may sail what Homer frequently describes, quite memorably, as the wine-dark sea. When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed, cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet... Afghans did it anyway. This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. 
Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The crew that set sail from Ithaca lands in Pylos to find that the Pylians are holding a feast and sacrifice to honor Poseidon. As per usual, this means sacrificing an absolute shit ton of animals. Based on this description, which includes some math and somewhat confusing things, I think we're talking over 80 bulls being sacrificed. 8 0. Just madness. Anyway, that's perfectly normal to the Ithacans, who arrive there, and after a little coaxing from Athena, Telemachus leads a group towards the feasting and sacrificing pillions. They're welcomed immediately, of course, as is the necessity under Xenia, and so for some time, they don't know who Telemachus is. The Ithacans have just been welcomed into the group, and it continues on as planned with the honoring of the gods. They pass around a cup, so that each person may make their own prayer to the gods, and it first goes to Athena, which seems particularly appropriate. Of course, she's disguised here as Mentor, a man guiding Telemachus on this journey. But she calls out to Poseidon, her own uncle, asking for good things for their host, Nestor, and for success in their own journey. Once the prayers have been made and the sacrifices sacrificed, Nestor finally asks his guests who they are and why they're there. Telemachus tells his story. He tells Nestor that he's come from Ithaca and that he's the son of Odysseus, who Nestor fought with in the famous Trojan War those many, many years ago. He tells Nestor that he's journeying in search of his father, who is yet to return from the war. He notes that Odysseus's fate is being held by Zeus. They're unsure what's happened to him. Was he killed on his journey? Did he drown in a shipwreck? Nestor is touched by this, by the memories of what happened in Troy. He recalls stories from that time, their journey to Troy, the nine years they spent just biding their time before they finally found success, how he and Odysseus got along so well when it came to making decisions on how things should be handled in the war, but how, in the end, Zeus wanted their journey home to be full of trouble, at the request of Athena, who was angry with what some of them had done. Cassandra. He tells the story of the night before they left, how Menelaus wanted to set sail right then, but Agamemnon wanted to stay and sacrifice to keep Athena happy. Nestor tells Telemachus that in the end, half of them had set sail early the next morning, before the sacrifice had taken place. How they got a little ways with no problem, but that then Zeus caused trouble between them. Odysseus decided to bring his men back to Agamemnon, to sacrifice there as planned. But that Nestor and many others had chosen to keep going that day, and that's how he made it home. And so, he's not seen Odysseus since he turned his ship back toward Troy those many years ago. The conversation between Nestor and Telemachus continues. There's talk of how well-liked Odysseus was by Athena, though that didn't seem to help. And then it transitions into, well, ancient Greek gossip. The two men speak in detail about what happened to Agamemnon, how he was killed by Aegisthus and Clytemnestra, 
I think this would be probably one of the first instances of this story being told. And then it was likely expanded upon over the years before becoming the story I told you over the past few weeks. Nestor finishes his telling by advising Telemachus to visit Menelaus for news from him, though this was already Telemachus's plan. Nestor tells him he can go by sea or by land, and that he'll send him with a carriage and a guide if he wants to go by land. Then he invites Telemachus to stay the night in the palace, while Athena tells him that she must return to the ship. Then she transforms into a bird and flies away, because I think she really needs people to understand that she's a goddess, even when she appears to them as a human. It's a pattern. It's decided, though, that Telemachus will indeed travel by land, and with Nestor's son as his guide. Before they can be on their way, there's another very graphic sacrifice, because my god, did they ever let animals live? Anyway, it's a whole to-do before Telemachus and Nestor's son, Pisistratus, get in their carriage and take off, making their way to Sparta. And so, Telemachus and Pisistratus arrive in Sparta. Surprise, surprise, the people of Sparta are also in the midst of holding a feast. In this case, it's a celebration of two marriages. Menelaus and Helen's daughter Hermione is being sent, as promised, to Achilles' son Neoptolemus. And Menelaus' son Megapenthes, whose mother we're told is a slave, because you know, is marrying a woman as well. They're welcomed by Menelaus into the party and immediately given all they could need. They get baths, and when that's done, they get dinner and wine, and oh man, it sounds like a real ball. Of course, much like Telemachus' last visit, all this occurs before they can even tell the man who they are. Still, before they've disclosed their identities, Menelaus goes on quite the diatribe about his troubles. Telemachus had remarked about how rich his palace is, and Menelaus proceeds to explain why he's earned it how much wandering he had to do before he reached his home, and how his brother had been killed by that time, too. There's a lot of recapping Agamemnon's death in this book. Just a lot. But amidst Menelaus's woe-is-me story, he says a name that catches the attention of Telemachus. He tells him that while he's suffered greatly, there's only one who's suffered more. The same man Menelaus misses dearly, Odysseus. Before Telemachus can even ask, Menelaus has told him that he doesn't know whether he's alive, that he's been gone so long, that his wife Penelope and his father Laertes and even his son Telemachus must miss him so much. All before Telemachus has had the chance to explain that he is indeed Telemachus. At this, Telemachus tears up, hearing this news about his father. Menelaus is a bit confused, but he's nice about it. Before he can ask Telemachus what he's said to make him sad, though, Helen appears and draws everyone's attention because, I mean, she's Helen and she's beautiful, but also there was a whole lot of bullshit caused in their opinions by her. Helen's got a funny line here, too. She simply walks in, asks Menelaus who these dudes are and whether she should watch herself around them, and then, right off the bat, says she can't believe how much this guy looks like Odysseus's son, Telemachus which is a common trope, it seems, in Greek mythology, and no one ever seems to think, oh, well, maybe that's because it is Telemachus. Like, why would you just assume there's a doppelganger out there when it's super possible and likely that just happens to be the guy that you think he looks like? Then, still without asking Telemachus anything, Menelaus is all, yeah, I thought the same thing, Helen. Look how many things he has in common with Odysseus. And he teared up earlier when I mentioned him. Finally, Pisistratus just says, yeah, I mean, it's him. He says it better and sounds far fancier, but the point stands. (laughs) 
Once it's been revealed who the guests of Menelaus are and where they've been sent from, the group reminisces about the war. Menelaus tells stories of Odysseus with Helen adding her own stories. Helen actually speaks quite a bit and seems here to be listened to, almost as if she were a man. It's pretty cool. Plus, they don't actually talk about how much trouble she caused. Now that's something else entirely. It's usually brought up endlessly. There's much talk of stories of Odysseus from the war, his bravery and his cunning, though all this leads Telemachus to be even more upset by this lack of information. Everyone keeps telling him how amazing his father is, how smart and brave, and yet he still hasn't returned from the war. Telemachus tells Menelaus this, and tells him about what's happened back in Ithaca. The suitors who won't leave the palace, how they've been there for years, eating and drinking the place out of all its stores. Menelaus is angry, raving about how unfair it is this is happening in Odysseus' home, and, as this is the way in Homer, this transitions into an epic tale told by Menelaus. He tells Telemachus about his journey home, about how he was trapped on an island for 20 days before he finally devised a way of freeing himself. This required speaking with an old sea god who guarded the island he was on. That god told Menelaus about the fate of Ajax, who was drowned for what he did to Cassandra, and of Agamemnon, who, for the zillionth time, we're told was killed by Aegisthus. And finally, Menelaus tells Telemachus, he pressed the god into telling him what he knew of Odysseus. He learned that he'd been seen crying on Calypso's island, that she'd trapped him there, that he had no boat or crew to help him get home. This is the news that Menelaus tells Telemachus, who, finally has a shred of information about the fate of his father. Meanwhile, in Ithaca, the suitors learn that Telemachus did indeed travel to Pylos, and that he likely even had a god helping him. They're shocked. They didn't think Telemachus had the guts to go anywhere, let alone travel by ship with a god. The suitors are furious that Telemachus would go to such lengths to get rid of them, and so they come up with their own plan. They will take a ship so that they may meet him on his way home. They're over Telemachus always being around, always complaining about what they're doing in Ithaca, how they're pursuing his mother. So they'll meet him en route and kill him before he ever returns home. Penelope learns this. She's angry and rightfully distraught. She may have already lost her husband, and she spent all these years keeping the suitors at bay in hopes that her husband may not be lost forever. But regardless of that, she actually loved him and doesn't want a replacement. She's put in all this work protecting herself and her son, only to have them plot his death. So Penelope prays to Athena, telling her that if she ever cared about Odysseus in the way that they all believe, that she must now protect Telemachus. Of course, this is far more relevant, an ask, than Penelope realizes. Well, my dear beloved nerds, that is the first part of the Odyssey. Who the fuck knows how many parts it will be, because we all remember how long it took me to tell the Iliad. But that's just how we roll here, friends. I give you details out the ass. As many of you know or would expect, I've been working off of Emily Wilson's new translation of the Odyssey. This is the first translation by a woman, and it's fucking badass. 
There are loads of incredible articles you can read about it, where Wilson tells us things like she's one of the few not to translate certain instances of the word woman into words like slut. So, you know, the men did some great translating up to this point. This translation is wonderful in that it's based less in the nonsensical patriarchy that is both Greek history and our own current world. Instead, this is a wildly qualified woman translating a work and seeing the reality of the sexism both in the writing and the translations of the past, and choosing to go a different way. Anyway, I'm not super knowledgeable on translations generally or the story behind previous translations, I just know I've read a couple, and this one is great so far. Plus, women doing awesome shit, and we support women doing awesome shit. So go buy it. I'm sorry, it's expensive because it's published by an academic press because, you know, it's the Odyssey, but it's worth it. Support that shit. I've also referred a little bit to this super fun graphic novel I have by Gareth Hines because, well, it's super helpful to see it visually and to see it transferred into small snippets of dialogue compared to lines and lines of poetry. Gotta do what I gotta do. I also want to address one thing that a couple of you have mentioned to me lately. So... Apollo is also known as Apollon. Sometimes this is considered the Greek versus Roman name, and that's what I've heard from some of you, that you believe I've been using the incorrect version, and we all know I'm a stickler. But it isn't exactly that black and white. It isn't, say, like Athena versus Minerva, or Zeus versus Jupiter. Apollo is actually one of the only gods that has the same name in Roman mythology as he does in Greek. The name Apollo is better described as the anglicized version of the name Apollon. I actually don't know how to pronounce the one with the N, but it's Apollo with the N at the end. Much like how Athena is the anglicized version of Athene with an E at the end instead of an A. Or the way Greek names are sometimes spelled with Ks where we in English might use a C. Like Arcadia, the region of Greece, you'll often find it spelled with a K as a more accurate representation of the Greek language. Or, similarly, there are names with different endings that can be more accurate to the original Greek. For instance, Achilles, he's more accurately Achilles, but the anglicized version is Achilles, and that's become the more commonplace usage. It's not wrong, and it's not the Roman version, it's just anglicized. Anyway, I've had a couple of these notes, so I just want to address why I use the name Apollo instead of Apollon, and to kind of explain the meaning behind it. If it were the explicit Roman name, let me tell you, I would not be using it. You won't hear me saying Ulysses anywhere in this story, for instance, though that's often the more commonly used name for our main man, Odysseus. In related news, you know, keep following me on Instagram, because when I hit that 10k, guys, I'm doing a Q&A and giving away a tote bag. I'm going to be super honest with you guys, too. I just really want to hit that line where it says K, instead of spelling out the number of followers individually. You know, seems like a real milestone that I want to hit. Also, I keep learning about things I'll be able to do when I hit that limit. Did you know you can't add links to your stories until you hit 10k? So help me out, okay? Also, I sent out another newsletter. At this point, we're going once a year, but I'm super hoping to make that more common. But you know, there's just a lot going on. Anyway, I'm feeling kind of rambly now, so I'm just going to finish up. Thank you all. You're wonderful. I'm Liv, and I love this shit, especially the Odyssey. Have I said that before? When the Taliban banned music in Afghanistan, millions were plunged into silence. Radios were smashed. Cassettes burned. You could be beaten or jailed or killed for breaking the rules. And yet, Afghans did it anyway. 
This is the story of how a group of people brought music back to Afghanistan by creating their own version of American Idol. The danger they endured. They said, my head should be cut off. The joy they brought to the nation. You're free completely. No one is there to destroy you. I'm John Legend. Listen to Afghan Star on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... Fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.